Let's Talk Sales. This is the podcast for anyone who's interested in growing sales. This podcast is brought to you by the Criteria for Success Sales Growth Program. Are you looking to experience a breakthrough in your team's sales? Have you tried sales training in the past, but were unable to make it stick? The Criteria for Success Sales Growth Program is a year-long engagement that combines sales and leadership training, a digital sales playbook, and a coaching and accountability process that will change your sales culture and drive sustained growth. Learn more at CriteriaForSuccess.com. Throughout the month of May, we're talking about storytelling. You can check out the blog for best practices, information, and advice for you and your team at criteriaforsuccess.com slash blog. This is Elizabeth Frederick, and I'm really excited to talk to today's guest. Our guest is Canada's number one B2B sales expert, according to LinkedIn. He won a million-dollar prize for winning a billion-dollar business pitch contest, and he's a speaker, trainer, advisor, and mentor at Shift Selling Incorporated. He wrote a great book um, with actually a previous Let's Talk Sales guest named Tibor Shanto called Shift Harness the Trigger Events that Turn Prospects into Customers. And last but not least, he lives in Calgary, Alberta with his beautiful family. And as a little fun fact, he volunteers in his community as a Zamboni driver. So our guest is Craig Elias. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today, Craig. Thank you very much for having me. Can you, um, I know I just listed off all the little facts about you, but can you introduce yourself to our listeners? Yeah, I'm, so I'm one of those kids that put his kids, I'm 56, I'm not a kid anymore, I just behave like a kid. Um, I'm one of those people that put himself through university and I graduated at 26 and my first job was actually a job in inside sales and I remember the interview I had, uh, it was a lady named Donna and I pretty much had a fight with Donna during this interview because she asked me, why did I want this job at Inside Sales? I said, because I want to be an outside sales guy. And she says, that doesn't happen here. We take engineers, we train them for two years, and they get to go out and be outside salespeople. I said, that's great, but my ambition is to be an outside salesperson. Turns out I got the job. And, And my memory is like 60 days in, her husband, who actually ran outside sales for the entire country, came to me and says, I have an opening in Edmonton. I have no engineer that's ready. Would you like to be an outside sales? So <laughs> it was just sort of, yeah, this is just the way that my life has been. And for basically 20 years, I was just a lucky sales guy. I just had this unbelievable knack of showing up in front of the right people at exactly the right time. And my number one approach was around what I call being someone's emotional favorite. So how do I find a way to be the person people would prefer to do business with? And basically for 20 years, that's exactly what happened until I joined a company the day before Mm 9-11. So I'm sure some people were selling then, but selling post 9-11 was pretty much impossible. But like always happened in less than six months, I got lucky and I was the number one sales guy in the entire country. Unfortunately, that company was called WorldCom. Ah. <laughs> and 21 days after I was named the number one guy in the entire country, they admitted to conducting counting fraud. So from mm-hmm. zero to zero. And all of a sudden, nobody would buy from me. And I did something for the first time in 20 years after that. 
I analyzed all the deals I won. I looked at all the six, seven, and eight figure deals I won, and that's when my whole life completely changed, and that's when I left being the world of sales to going on to be a boutique sales consultant and a storyteller. That is such a wonderful story, Craig, and I think it's something, um, unfortunately, a lot of people don't do is take that time to look back. And it's funny, um, an exercise that I always recommend to our clients when they're looking at um, how should I prospect, how should I target, um, what are the kinds of deals I should work, I always tell them, look at your most successful client engagements and look for trends. And companies have never done this. And individual sales reps have never done this. And so just taking that time to look back and say, what's my history? Um, what have I done that's worked? What have I done that hasn't worked? That's such a great exercise. Well, and it's interesting for me because when I did this exercise in the summer of 2002, I actually went to the internet and I typed between quotes the phrase lost sales analysis. So the importance mm -hmm. of the quotes means it has to be those three words together in that order. And I found about 50,000 pages on the internet. But since I didn't have time to read 50,000 pages. I said, well, why don't I just go focus more on what I had done to see if I can learn from other people that had done a similar approach. So I replaced the word lost with the word one in that phrase. So now, between quotes, it's one sales analysis, W-O-N, analyzing the deals I won. I hit enter, and much to my surprise, in the summer of 2002, there were only two pages on the internet that talked about how to analyze the deals you win so you can replicate your biggest deals. That is wonderful. Yeah, it's. I think you need to do both, but you're right. You can't just do those lost analysis um, and uh, go negative like that to really make sure that you're you're looking at the positives as well. I think it's a natural kind of human um, condition that we feel like I know I should look at the losses. I have a process for analyzing the losses, but then we don't flip the switch and say, I should also do the same thing on the wins. Um, yeah, so, so, oh, go ahead. Yeah, so, so I have a philosophy. So first of all, it doesn't mean I'm right, it just means I have an opinion. So um, when, when you talk to most salespeople and you ask them, why did you win the business? Most salespeople will say, I won the business because I had the best relationship. I got inside information, all the rest of the stuff based upon the relationship. The challenge is when you ask a salesperson why they lost a piece of business, more times than not, they'll say price. Absolutely. They never admit they lost <laughs> the business based upon the relationship. So this is the dilemma I personally have with a, with a lost sales analysis, is if you didn't have a really good relationship and you lost the business, if you go to do a lost sales analysis, the challenge is, first of all, people are going to tell you stuff, and, and I never, if, if I don't have a good relationship, odds are they're not telling me the whole truth. Absolutely. So then you do these lost sales analyses, trying to use a strategy called hope. You hope you can analyze your losses in order to be able to figure <laughs> out how you win more, but it doesn't work. Guy Kawasaki, I love Guy Kawasaki, one of the things he says is hope is not strategy. Absolutely. So, One of my favorite but, quotes. But yeah, but there is, a, there is a form of lost analysis I am a big fan of, and it's when you lose a customer. Mm -hmm. Like when a customer leaves, what we need to understand is what was behind them leaving. All right? And the thing for me also is in this one sales analysis approach, I think it's important it's done by the salesperson. Mm -hmm. Because what happens is when a salesperson does this analysis, this whatever way you choose, I choose, whatever it is, but when they do it, it does something interesting. What it does is it turns on this thing called selective perception. 
So when we buy a new car and see it all over the road, the same thing happens when a salesperson does this one sales analysis. They'll start identifying all these customers that are more likely to become a customer because their one sales analysis has helped them identify either the industry, the trigger, the title, but it, it all of a sudden the best opportunities will jump out in front of them because the selective perception gets turned on. Absolutely. That's um, that's a really great example. Thank you for that, Craig. That's immediately um, some wisdom for our listeners. Something for them to think about is um, making sure, again, that you have your sales reps do this one sales analysis and that you're kind of stripping away the emotion as much as you can and really thinking about what contributed and not falling into that trap of just, oh, it was my relationship that made me win the business. Um, yeah. You're quite the storyteller. I know in our previous conversations, you're an excellent story storyteller. And um, our focus in May is storytelling. And a story that I've heard little hints of, and I mentioned in my intro that I don't know the details of, is that billion dollar business pitch story. Can you share that with our listeners? Yeah. So um, I, as I was going through this analysis of my luck as a salesperson, I decided this all happens before I turned 40. One of the things that I had wanted to always do was be an entrepreneur, but I said to myself, I'm going to do it because we don't always do it right the first time around. I want to do it before I was 40. And we're all kind of bidding to conducting this accounting fraud um, was actually the spring of the year I turned 40. And when I did all this analysis, um, at the end of August, what I decided was I have six weeks until my 40th birthday. I'm going to take what I learned. I'm going to start a business. And, and here's what I learned. What, what I learned is that the average business-to-business -business salesperson in North America learns of a million dollars worth of things their customers want, but it's not what that salesperson sells. Mm -hmm. And at the time, my data said that there was about three million B2B salespeople in North America. So I'm pretty good at math. I know if I multiply three million times a million, that's $3 trillion worth of information in the heads of salespeople, of which they were doing nothing with 75% of the time. That is genius. So my idea was inside of exchange. Salespeople, in order for someone to buy from them, they need to have a better relationship. But they can't develop that relationship until somebody buys from them. So how do you find a way to solve that, lack of a better term, conundrum? And for me, what I learned in my experience is when I focus on the customer, when I help them solve problems that are not related to my product or service, all of a sudden I develop a completely different status. Charlie Green would call it trusted advisor. In my case, I call it the emotional favorite. I'm the person people would rather do business with because when you give, you get. So for mm -hmm. me, it was this way of helping salespeople actually give. So I came up with this idea, I did a bunch of analysis, I got a, uh, I, I launched the company in February, I had uh, kind of a beta version in May. And then later on that summer, I got a phone call from a past coworker. His name was Dory. And Dory at the time used to live his life on the fringe of the internet. Mm -hmm. And he heard of LinkedIn. So of the 700 million LinkedIn users, I'm 3,956. I get in on day eight. Um, but Dory then found this competition on the internet. It's run by a very famous venture capitalist down in Silicon Valley. His name is Tim Draper. And Tim Draper is a bit of a personality. 
and he had a blog way back then and he blogged something and, and some entrepreneur went on a bit of a rant and said, you venture capitalists are all the same, right? You only ever invest in people you've already invested in. There's no way for someone new to break in. Mm -hmm. So Tim said, oh yeah, watch this. I'm gonna have a contest. It's open to anybody on the planet. Everybody gets to submit 1,500 characters about their idea. And from those 1,500, I'll pick 10. Or sorry, from all the submissions who, who put in 1,500 characters, mm -hmm. I'll pick 10 of them. So oh, Dory wow. makes me aware of this contest. And, and the prize is a million dollars. So Dory makes me aware of the contest. I look at all the submissions from around the world, and I'm like, I think I have an idea that could win. Wow. So I submitted my 1,500 characters. And I went around Calgary, where I lived at the time, telling all these people that I'm going to be in the top 10, I'm going to be in the top 10, I'm going to be in the top 10. And of course, all these successful entrepreneurs and senior managers said, yeah, you're a snotty-nosed, first-time entrepreneur, <laughs> no idea what you're doing, you'll never make the top 10. Well, they were right. But for some reason, it turned out that Tim didn't pick 10 people to do their five-minute pitch over a webcam. Turns out he picked 11. Oh, my goodness. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. That's quite the story. <laughs> So I got my five minutes of fame. I start my five-minute pitch. I'm 30 minutes into my five-minute pitch, which I've only gotten down to five <laughs> minutes and eight seconds, by the way. So I'm 30 seconds into my pitch, and Tim starts asking me questions. And all I could think to myself was, can you please just shut the up? Because I only have five minutes. <laughs> oh. But what I learned is that in the first 30 seconds, he was hooked. Absolutely. It's never a bad thing when somebody extends um, your time or interrupts your time with questions. Uh, if they're talking, yeah. that's a good sign. So, <laughs> and there's a little hint for all our listeners out there. Don't get, don't get yeah, upset you, when your prospects ask, yeah. ask you questions. Oh, yeah. and, and here's what I learned from Tim afterwards. So when the whole thing was done, so I moved to California. I lived in the coolest place down there. I lived on, a, on what's called Yerba Buena Island. So if you leave... Ooh. Just going to drive by car to Oakland, there's two bridges. Mm -hmm. and there's a tunnel halfway across. That tunnel goes underneath this island called Yerba Buena with a six minute bus ride to my office downtown. So I moved down there um, and I went and I talked to Tim after the, all the paperwork was done. And I said, So, what did you see in five minutes that made you say you'd give me the million dollars? He said, Craig, I'm going to tell you two things. First of all, you might have noticed it didn't take me five minutes, it took me 30 seconds. And mm -hmm. I knew at that point I was going to give you money. But what you don't know, I actually didn't decide to give you a million dollars. I thought you're probably going to need more. So in that 30 seconds, I had actually decided I'd give you up to five. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and, and here's what I've learned since then. I, did, I was completely lucky. So what I managed to do in the first 30 seconds is explain to Tim, I've got this massive market. I've got a business model that works. And I have a way to defend my customers and my market from the competition. Mm -hmm. And it turns out those are the three biggest things that venture capitalists or angel investors want to hear when you pitch them idea. I just got lucky. Absolutely. Well, that's just really amazing. And, um, you know, as you were sharing your idea, I think that that really resonated with me. And I'm sure that's going to resonate with our listeners that um, being able to position yourself as a trusted advisor, like you were saying, I like your term emotional favorite, um, being able to provide that wisdom, that perspective, that um, that kind of impartial advice and recommendations to your clients. Everybody wants to be that. And we all can think of the people in our network who are like that. The people who, anytime you have a question, you can go to them and you know that they've got the answer. Anytime you need a vendor, you can go to them and you know that they're going to know the person to connect you to. That's such a valuable person in your network. So we all want to be like that. So to enable that for people um, is a really great thing. 
So I want to backtrack just a little bit. And I think you shared a touch of this, but I'd like to get your perspective. When do you think your passion for sales and business really began? What made you first want to get into sales? Um, so really question. So I'm, I'm going to back up a little bit because I think for me, so I was this kid who was just uh, incredibly What's the word I want to say? I'm just going to say talented because it wasn't like through effort, but it was just something that came naturally. But I was mm-hmm. this natural problem solver. And I'll, when you put all these quizzes in class and all all these brain teachers, like I'd be the first kid every time that would solve that stuff. Yep. So I started to actually go to DeVry to learn how to program. And this was, it was privately owned, so the, the tuition is relatively expensive. I'm getting mm-hmm. crazy grades like I never did in um, high school, and my dad just says, "Look, if you're getting grades of like 94, 96, 98 percent, you're not learning anything. So get out of DeVry and go to university." Mm-hmm. So I then started going to uh, York University. I was doing uh, part-time nights because I was working days, and then I got to the point where I could save enough money to decided I wanted to go to school full-time. So I switched to the University of West Ontario, where I always wanted to go. And in my first year there. Two things happened at the same time. Uh, one, I bumped into second-year calculus twice. <laughs> I struggled with it. Uh, but at the same time, I took this course called Business 257, and it's a prerequisite for an honors in business administration. And I chewed that course up, and I spat it out, um, got crazy grades. And at that point, I said, do I want to spend all night in front of computers or all day in front of people? And I did this complete 180-degree uh, switch. And I was working at a very popular bar in a portion of Toronto called Young and Eglinton. And it wasn't so much that I had a passion for sales, but I have a passion for winning. So I was this classic overachiever, firstborn in my family. I turned things into games because I want to win. And I spend time thinking about how do I generate leverage? And what I've learned is mm-hmm. relationships are leverage. And if I can help people solve problems, I'm golden. If I my first job was an inside salesperson. I had distributors in Western Canada. Mm-hmm. Any business opportunity I found, I gave to a distributor, and they would start bringing them back. So it was just this ability to create these bonds that at the end of the day, knowing that you're actually helping somebody solve problems, whether you got paid a commission or not, for me, that's the day I went home and said, I made the world a better place. That is awesome. It's funny. Um, I didn't realize it when we were speaking before this, but you and I had a little bit of a similar journey. I started college as a computer science major, and I had that same kind of realization. I was taking, I forget if it was, I think it was a management and leadership class, and um, talking to my professor who had actually been in business consulting, and it seemed just so much more interesting um, to, to focus on people and problems and organizational processes than to focus on just the, the computer programming side. And I was doing okay in um, the computer science, but I actually switched my major um, to business and I had a lot more fun. I found it a lot more interesting and obviously I'm pretty happy with, with where I ended up. So I think we, we followed a little bit of a similar journey. Unfortunately, I never won any sort of a contest like that. Um, <laughs> I think you've got a little bit more of the entrepreneurial spark than I do. Um, But when we talked before, you mentioned that you've had some realizations in the last few years at kind of a big picture level that have changed how you think about selling. Could you share that with our listeners? Yeah. So uh, if you would ask me when I started in sales, 
I would have said that sales is more art than science. Mm-hmm. I would have said it's ninety percent art, it's ten percent science. You can, it's it's hard to it's hard to teach. You can you know people can learn it. It's just how do you help people learn? Because you'll try to teach sales. The question is, I don't think it can be taught, but I think it can be learned. And the question is, how do you learn it? Mm-hmm. So I still think there's a large part of art, and the art I think is in the art of building relationships. What what I have learned uh, in the last few years is two things: that it is not uh, 90% art and 10% science. It's probably 50-50. In fact, it might even be more on the science side mm-hmm. these days. Now, specifically when you do this one sales analysis and you can identify specific events that drive the majority of your business, that's the science part. The art part is still about building relationships. And, and there's one word I've learned in the last few years that describes, I think, the art of building relationships. And that term is called propinquity. Mm-hmm. I'll spell it for you. It's P-R-O-P-I-N. Q-U-I-T-Y, propinquity. Okay. Propinquity is the impact of nearness. Ah. Geographical and psychological nearness. And it turns out that the more that people have in common with you, the more likely they are to choose you as a vendor of choice. Yep. So the art then becomes, how do you find a way to share enough about yourself so you find things in common with other people? And how do you find a way to get other people to tell you things about themselves so that you can then say, oh, hang on a second, you have your first degree in computer science and then you went to business? That's just like me. And all of a sudden you have this thing in common like we just did on this call. Absolutely. so my favorite thing to do, especially if I've got someone who I've chatted with on more than one occasion, most of my prospecting happens at two times in the week. It happens first thing Monday morning because it's either on somebody's list of things to get done this week or it's not. Mm-hmm. My second favorite time is uh, Friday after lunch. They come back from lunch. They've got something that's been on their list all week. They haven't gotten rid of it. They want to get rid of it. Or it got on their list all sometime throughout the week. They want to get rid of it before the weekend comes. So when I call these people on Monday and Friday, what I try to do is I start a conversation. So on Monday, when I start a conversation, if I want to know more about themselves, what's the first question I should ask somebody on Monday morning when I talk to them, do you think? I would think, what are your priorities this week? Or what do you want to get done? Or what did you do this weekend? Oh, that's a good one too. I usually ask that when I talk to people on Monday. Like you said, um, it's just a way to learn about people. And it's amazing, you immediately kind of figure out the big picture stuff. And people, when you ask a question that's a general like that, they'll share to the level that they're comfortable sharing. And so some people will open right up and they'll say, oh, you know, I had my kids soccer game on Saturday and blah, 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 blah. And other people might say, oh, I just really enjoyed the beautiful weather outside. And then you kind of can evaluate what's the level of relationship you have with them um, and how comfortable are they opening up and sharing based on what they say. Now, and I'm a big fan also that the part of the art of sales is asking the right question. So instead of saying, how was your weekend? Mm-hmm. It's like, what did you do on the weekend? Yeah, just and a then, small distinction there, but so important. It's a small thing. Uh, the other thing is, so let's pretend you're going to phone me after lunch on a Friday and I answer the phone. What's the first thing you're going to ask? 
Well, you could say, what are you looking forward to doing this weekend? weekend. <laughs> oh, I'm going skiing. We're going to Whistler Black. I'm, oh, Whistler. Have you done the glacier? Have you been to the Widowmaker? You know that spot down by, like, all of a sudden, you talk about these things they have in common. And it's amazing how people's stress levels completely dissipate. And they're like, oh, that guy, Craig. Like, he, he's a family guy. He drives in a bony. He loves dogs, likes to sail, and drinks really good red wine. He's just like me. <laughs> Absolutely. And what's funny, too, is no matter what it is somebody says, you should be able to find something to say in response. Even if they have the weirdest hobby that you can't really connect to, you can figure out what's the value behind it um, that I share. So if it's something they're doing with their family and I'm, you know, they're going skiing with their family, I don't ski. I don't like to be outside in snow. I'm from the Upper Peninsula of Michigan and I always thought I'd move somewhere warm. Somehow I landed in New York, which is warmer, but not all that warm, but (laughs) I'm not going to ski. But spending time doing activity with family, I could connect with somebody at that level. So you can always find a way to continue the conversation, even if you can't necessarily speak to, you know, the specific ski runs that they're doing. <laughs> yeah. Like, you can always ask questions. Well, do you go there every year? Like just, so I, I've learned to ask what are called second-order questions. And that second-order question is a question based upon the answer you got from your first question. So instead of having 10 questions, you go with three. And you ask questions based upon the answers. Yeah, and so many people ask questions like they're checking a box. um, And they'd even hear this episode and say, oh, I should ask, what did you do this weekend? And then they hear it and they check the box and then they move on. So what would you like to buy for me today? And um, instead, you want to continue the conversation. I think a lot of times people go into a meeting with like 20 questions they want to ask. No, have three and have those be three really good starter questions that are going to explode into a, a robust conversation and you'll end up doing pretty well. Well, and, and so there's a bunch of different things you can do in this whole art of asking questions. The, the, one of the first things is when someone's finished with their answer, you can wait six seconds because they'll get uncomfortable with the silence. And very often they'll tell you about the problem or what it is. And then if you can shut up for six seconds, mm-hmm. they get uncomfortable with the silence. And now they tell you about all the emotion behind the problem. If after five or six seconds you're not hearing much, all you need to do is take the last two or three words that they used, say them back with an inquisitive voice, and then they'll tell you more. And it's really not that hard, as long as you can find a way as a salesperson to shut up long enough for people to actually tell you things that they'd like to tell you. Definitely. I think an unfortunate characteristic of some people is that they get very uncomfortable with silence and so they jump in right when somebody was about to open up and so if you in sales and in business can become comfortable with being a little bit uncomfortable and just pausing for that minute um, and again it's not a minute like you said it's six seconds sometimes maybe 10 seconds at most breathe you know take a sip of water coffee whatever it is and just process and let them process and a lot of times they'll get uncomfortable sooner than you will and they'll they'll rush to jump in and that you know expands the conversation expands what they were talking about and instead you're jumping in and stepping right on that perfect moment that they were about to create if you are the one that has to jump in 
Totally. All right. So I'm going to pivot a little bit, and I'd love to talk about your book. I mentioned at the very beginning, um, again, yep. for our listeners, that's called Shift, Harness the Trigger Events that Turn Prospects into Customers. Um, your co-author is Tibor Shanto, and we talked to him back in episode 139. I will include a link to that for our listeners in the notes for today's show. So what motivated you to write this book? Um, so this book is actually the first of three so the first book is called Shift, How Do You Harness These Events When They Naturally Happen? The second book, when I get around to it one day, who knows when it's going to happen, uh, is called Shove, How Do You Create the Events and Push Aside Your Competition? And mm-hmm. the third book is called Stay, which is How Do You Prevent the Events and Keep Your Customers? And what happened when I moved to California, so when I, when I won this Billion Dollar Idea competition, I was dating a lady. Um, neither one of us had been married. We both wanted to have a family. And the idea was that we're both in our 40s, can't wait to get married uh, before we have kids. So I have to move to California to collect the prize. She has to stay in Calgary to keep her job. So I commuted back and forth every other weekend because we wanted to try and see if we could have a family. That happens, I would come home earlier. If not, I would do my two years in the Valley, see what happens, maybe I'll come home, maybe I should come down, don't know. And six months into that program, Heather, who's now my wife, uh, gets pregnant and I had to go to Tim Draper tell him that I love his money, but I love this lady more. And I promised Heather and I promised myself that I was not going to be a successful entrepreneur with a ruined marriage and dysfunctional kids. Mm-hmm. So I put in place a CEO and I came home. And I got home and I was home for about three days and I got asked to go speak at this CEO conference. So 54 CEOs. And they wanted me to talk about what I had learned about sales that was behind this business that I had created. So I gave a 25 minute speech and it was based upon an understanding of buying modes, status quo, window of dissatisfaction, being a perfect place to sell, um, searching for alternatives, and then this whole concept of triggers. When is someone more likely or more motivated to become your customer? So I did this 25 minute session and half of these CEOs came to me afterwards and said, can you deliver a two day version of that to my team? And I'm like, I just got home I'm trying to find a way to stay home and be a dad. I have no interest in doing this. I didn't say this to them. I did, and I actually didn't have any more than 25 minutes at the time. So what I said was, you know what? Give me six months, and I'll deliver a half-day version. But what I realized at that time is I needed to try and find a way to put the stuff in the book because the idea was if people come to me in the future and I want to spend time with my son and don't want to travel, I can just say, read the book, read the book, read the book. <laughs> so the so. book comes out, wins an award, is one of the top sales books of the year. So now what happens? Even more people want me <laughs> to go do this thing. You're just fighting them so, off. Yeah, it was, that was sort of the motivation behind the book. Uh, it's still, so the book is really put together in uh, two components. The first three chapters is what did I learn in my summer of reflection on all my six, seven, and eight-figure deals? Mm-hmm. So these were the three big things I learned. The last four chapters of the book is what was I doing for 20 years that made me so lucky? So the first three were with the learnings, and the last four is much more about the method and the process that I had naturally used to be able to make it all happen. And, and one of the pieces in this book um, I touch on it briefly, but it's, it's one of the most important things I think I have learned about sales. And mm-hmm. I've actually seen some data that supports um, what I've learned. So I had this scenario where I was being parachuted across the country, taking on territories, rescuing them. And I remember when I got 
moved back from Edmonton to Toronto, took over a, a pretty good territory. One of my customers was a million dollar customer. And within about three months of my taking over, I lost that customer. Oh, wow. Now, luckily enough, I had found others to more than replace that million dollars. But for me, that was something I'm like, does that happen often? Like, I, what do I do differently? So when I got transferred out of that territory and sent off to Vancouver, I took over a multi-million dollar customer. And what I learned is that 28% of all vendor switches are triggered by a change in account managers. So this is this whole thing around this lost customer analysis mm -hmm. that I think is so important. Uh, and I learned from this exercise. So now what I recommend every time somebody takes over a new territory or a new account is to ask three key questions. And that three key questions for me are, um, so let's pretend I took over an account from or territory from you. Okay, I'm gonna say, I'm gonna go see, let's say Mario, and I'll, I start as far up the organization as I possibly can. And I'll ask for 20 minutes of Mario's time. I've taken over as they can't manage. I have a few key questions I'd like to ask. I, they've never said no to me in the whole time I ever did this. So I go see these people and, and I do the, you know, Monday, Friday thing. So I can ask, what did you do on the weekend? Or what are your plans? And then the three questions for me always are, well, what did Elizabeth do really well mm -hmm. that I need to keep doing? So what did my predecessor do really well that I need to keep doing? The second question is, what does my competition do that I should start doing? Yep. <laughs> and my third question was, I'm curious what nobody does that you wish everybody did. Oh, that's wonderful. And I got all these golden nuggets. Absolutely. And this $3 million account that I had inherited, I not only managed to keep and move it up by like 40%, with 40%, $2 million, 80% um, in a couple of years, the time frame that I had it, but uh, it also allowed me to break into all kinds of accounts where my predecessor couldn't get anywhere because I was asking, what does nobody do you wish everybody did? And that allowed me to raise people's expectations. And by Absolutely. raising their expectations, I made them dissatisfied with the competition. Mm -hmm. And that's the way that I displaced them. Yeah, because if you just stopped after those first two questions, you're kind of still fighting at the same level as everybody else. But by just yeah. taking that third question, you're head and shoulders above everybody else and you're really opening things up. And I'm sure sometimes people will ask for things that you can't provide. but quite often you will be able to provide them. And then when you go to that next customer and you mention something that you're doing that somebody else asked for as just, oh, this is something I like to do for my clients, you're immediately starting a step ahead. And then you're still asking yeah. them what they want, but um, you can really share those best practices across your entire account base. Yep. Um, I'm going to jump a little bit into process because I really liked your book um, and I highly recommend it to our listeners. And I really especially liked that format where the chapters have key takeaways, follow-ups, additional resources. Once you answered that first question where you talked about why you wrote the book, I kind of get it because you were kind of trying to deliver maybe some consulting um, in the book itself. But why did you decide to write it that way? Am I right in my guess? And um, how did you find the process of kind of developing that outline, very action-oriented approach? 
Good question. So uh, a couple of things. First of all, I figure that most of the people reading the book probably have some form of ADHD. I don't think I've ever been clinically diagnosed, but I, but I have a short attention span. So I said to myself, I need to find a way to write the book in such a way that if people only read the first three chapters, that's all that matters. That was mm-hmm. the first thing. The, the second thing was trying to help people understand. So I have learned the power of something called FOMO. You ever heard of FOMO? Indeed. F-O-M-O? Fear of missing out. Fear of missing out. So I said, I said every chapter, if you don't read this chapter, these are the three things you will miss. <laughs> so that was That's kind perfect. of my way of applying FOMO to the book. That's wonderful. Um, and the process. So here's the thing. And I'm sure the listeners will have figured this out a long time ago. I'm a way better talker than a typer, speller, grammarian. So the way the book actually came about is I did a series of seven different webinars. Mm-hmm. And by having a live audience, I had a live audience on the webinar. So I would do these, I would do a webinar. I would then have the recording transcribed. I'd send the transcription off to a writer, an editor, a proofreader. So I took these recordings from these seven different webinars. I stitched them all together, right? Um, hired someone to make it look good, sound pretty. I read, I read you know, I think I've read my own book probably 50 times. Uh, and the funny thing is, even when you read it 50 times, you still find spelling mistakes. So um, <laughs> that was the process that I used. I, would, I had a webinar every single week for seven weeks. And then I took the whole thing, right? Um, I then had it uh, self-published so that I had way more, way more control over the content and distribution and all kinds of other things. But that's the process that I went through. I, for me to sit down and write a book, I, I have, oh, how do I say this? You know, I have nothing but high regards for people that can sit down and write a book. Whether it takes them a month, a year, it doesn't really matter. But just that the process or concept of writing a book, I can't write a book. I can speak a book and have it transcribed, which is the process that I use. That's so funny because um, our founder and CEO, Charles Bernard, is currently, I'll use air quotes, writing a book. And it's a similar process. He's working with a ghostwriter and he sits with her and talks and shares the book. And that's how it's being written. I think that's such a creative approach to do it through webinars as well. I'm looking at the clock and I wish we could just keep talking forever. I've got about 10,000 more questions for you, but I think I need to wind things down. So I'm going to ask our last couple of questions. Um, so first of all, we've been talking about books. What are some of your favorite sales and business growth books? So uh, two things. I think every salesperson, every entrepreneur should read uh, chapter four of Spin Selling. I think mm-hmm. it's the most impactful 30 pages ever written, pages 67 to 96. Oh, wow. Like you know the chapter and the pages. <laughs> yeah, move, move, move into the impact or implications of your product service. That I'm a huge fan of. The other book, which uh, I have with me almost everywhere I go, is a book called Never Be Closing. Yes. It's by two guys named Tim. Tim Hurst yep. and Tim Dunn. Um, so this is the only sales book I have ever read cover to cover, like, sequen- like twice. It is, wow. it is the most underlined, dog-eared, highlighted book, sales book, I have ever read. So this, this book for me it is, again, about more of an interviewing process from a sales perspective. When you have an hour with a client, you spend 45 minutes 
doing some sort of interview, Q&A. You spend the last 15 minutes doing a presentation or whatever it is that you want to pitch. Um, this book, I think, for almost all of my entrepreneur or, or entrepreneurially oriented clients has completely shifted the way that they sell. Um, Wonderful. So this, Definitely looking for the most beat-up book you have. That's probably a good sign. Um, this, is, this is the most beat-up book. The other book that I love is by a guy named Mac Hannon. Mm-hmm. It's called Consultative Selling. Mm-hmm. And what Mac helped me do is understand that I sell to finance people and I sell to operations people. And it's all about how do I find a way to help them save money or save time. And every time I find a way to do that analysis and sell to the VP of finance, VP of operations, my close ratios are crazy high. Definitely. All right. Um, last question. Here at CFS, we talk quite a bit about sales playbooks, and we're always yep. looking for useful tips that our audience can share in their playbooks. What is one actionable tip that our listeners might consider adding to their playbooks? Um, when you call a prospect, I think the first question is ask them how happy you are with the current vendor. Yes. Have they ever let them down? Because if they're happy with the current vendor, nothing's going to change. Yep. And then the question you need to ask or could ask is, well, who did you use before this vendor? Oh, I used mm-hmm. to use that vendor. Oh, well, what was the thing that made you switch? What triggered the change? Yep. And, and learn what it was that caused them to switch. And then the last question for me is, what can I do to become the first person you phone the next time something similar happens? Yes. Perfect. All right. And you that- want all those people that aren't ready to buy, you're lining them up. Waiting for something to happen. <laughs> Definitely. And everybody needs to read your book where they'll learn all about how those are trigger events and you're looking for trigger events. Okay. Um, so thank you so much for being here, Craig, and thank you to all of our listeners. You can find the notes for today's show and resources for everything that we've been talking about at criteriaforsuccess.com slash pod one five three. And in there we will include how you guys can get um, Craig's book. So tune in next week where we'll have a training episode focused on storytelling in sales. And in the meantime, stay tuned for this Friday's inspiration where Charles will be sharing a great quote from Hannah Arendt. For our dedicated listeners, we want to learn more about you. We've developed a short listener survey, which you can find at criteriaforsuccess.com slash pod survey. When you complete the survey, you'll be entered into a drawing to receive a $50 Amazon gift card. Beginning next month, we'll be writing about problem solving on the CFS blog. You can check it out at criteriaforsuccess.com slash blog, and we'll be sharing a brand new resource. If you're enjoying the show, please recommend us to a friend and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever it is that you find your podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a rating or a review. This will help more people find the show, and it lets us know what's working and where we have room to improve. Remember to follow us on Twitter at Let's underscore talk underscore sales. Let's Talk Sales is a production of Criteria for Success and is produced by Ariana Miskell and me, Elizabeth Frederick. Happy selling!